Away in the manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. The stars in the sky look down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Fairest Lord Jesus, what a friend we have in Jesus. You are beautiful, my sweet, sweet song. If you were to open your hymnal, and I know this is sort of passe, and just glance at the titles following the name Jesus, we would learn about about Jesus. For instance, Jesus, the soul's delight. Jesus, the lily of the valley. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Jesus, I come. Jesus is all the world to me. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus has lifted me. Jesus is softly and tenderly calling us home. Jesus loves even me. Jesus, how I trust him. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Jesus never forgets. Jesus, Savior of and pilot who will pilot me home. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus loves the little children. Jesus, the sweetest name I know. Jesus, the very thought of thee. What you won't find in your hymnal or in a songbook or being sung today are songs or hymns with these kind of titles. Jesus, the one who strikes the nations. Jesus, the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus, the one who treads the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus, the one who comes bearing a sword to kill, destroy, and annihilate his enemies. Jesus, the warrior who comes to execute the justice of God. You know, it's a joy to sing about Jesus. It's a joy to sing Jesus, the sweetest name that I know. Jesus, the very thought of thee. To think of Jesus is to think of a friend, a lover, a master, a shepherd, a king, a savior. It is to think of a lily, a light, sweetness, compassion, peace, faithfulness, joy, delight, rest, tenderness, gentleness. But to think of Jesus is also to think of a warrior, an annihilator, a judge, an executioner. To think of Jesus is to think of justice and truthfulness and fire and righteousness and splendor and purity and majesty and holiness and omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. The world's Savior is the world's judge. When the Apostle John began to write the book of Revelation, this is how he saw the Lord Jesus. Not as a baby asleep on the hay, but as an awesome warrior and judge coming to wage war on his enemies on this earth. John was so overcome by what he saw that he fell on his face as though he were dead. 
I'd like for you to look with me this morning at what John saw and heard and experienced as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 1, and we've come to verses 9 to 20. We're going to look at this in two parts, and I will explain it as I move along. But let's read the whole passage for now. Revelation 1, 9 to 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes a flame of fire. His feet were like fire, fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, Some of you might be thinking, why did I come to church this morning? All I need is another message on judgment. Add it to my growing list of heartaches, troubles, and pains. But I'd like you to take heart. Because what John saw and heard and wrote down for us was not designed to cause us pain. It was not even designed to create fear. It was designed to create patience. I'd like you to note how John begins in verse 9. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in this verse, John identifies with his readers. He identifies with you and I. And he does it in two ways. First of all, he says, I'm your brother implying that he wrote this for other brothers and sisters who, like him, have become children of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Second, not only is he our brother, he also says he is our companion. Literally, that means fellow partaker or partner might be a better way of putting it in our vernacular today. And he is our partner in tribulation, kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ. John, in effect, says he shares in common three things with his brothers and sisters that he's writing to. Tribulation, kingdom, and patience. It's crucial that we understand these three things if we're going to really apply what he has written to our lives. First, he shares in our tribulation. John is writing, and John says, I share in your tribulation. You see, in our trials and troubles as Christians, it's important to know that we're not in these things together. I know I'm looking out, and there's probably 120-some people here that have problems, that are having trials. And John says, you're not alone. I've got them too. And the day that John wrote, it was a considerable cost to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to come out of the closet and say, I'm a follower of Christ. Cost you much. Persecution, financial ruin, social, uh, being socially ostracized, imprisonment, affliction, and even death. These were the hardships inflicted on those who followed Christ by Rome. John knew firsthand the agony and the hardship of this kind of tribulation. I'd like you to notice the last part of verse one, of verse nine. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation, kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island of Patmos, called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, Patmos was a, a little island. The middle of the sea. It was treeless. It was six miles wide and ten miles long, approximately. All there was on the island were several rock quarries where Rome was mining rocks for its growing empire. Rome would exile undesirable people to this island and force them to work in hard labor in these quarries. Exiles were effectively shut off from their family, from their friends, and from the outside world. John was sent to this island because he preached and taught the Word of God. And because he wrote and testified about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he was there. That's what he says in verse 9. So he can more than identify with the troubles and the trials that we're experiencing. Or that the readers, even in the first century that he wrote this book to the readers, what they were experiencing in the way of persecution. He can identify with all of us. Second, not only does he identify or share in common tribulation with us, he also shares in common with us the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about there? I think he's saying that he shares with us a commitment to live in submission to King Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
King Jesus is not yet seated on the throne of David, reigning over his glorious, messianic, worldwide kingdom that shall come to this earth. At this moment that John writes, and at the moment that I'm speaking, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool. But every believer in Jesus is exhorted to willingly make him Lord of their life, to honor him as king, to be committed to serving him. And so John says, we have a common commitment here. I'm committed to serving and obeying Jesus Christ, and I'm writing, I hope, to people who also have a common commitment to serve and obey King Jesus, even though he's yet not yet reigning on the throne of David. That love, by the way, that commandment, he says, I'm committed to keeping the commandments of Jesus like you are. And one of the key commandments that John kept drilling home to his churches that he would be involved with, particularly the church at Ephesus, where a tradition records that on his deathbed, they were carrying him into the services of the church and he cried out to them, love one another, love one another as Jesus loved us. Because that's his commandment. If you're going to serve King Jesus, you love one another. Third, he not only has in common with us perseverance or, pardon me, tribulation and a kingdom and a king whom he's committed to serving, but he shares in common with us patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he shares with us a common need. If we're going to finish our lives as faithful servants and subjects of our King and Lord Jesus Christ, what we will need, all of us, is patient endurance through all of life's ups and downs. Whatever tribulation or troubles or problems that we have, what we really need is patient endurance. They can't always be solved by just waving a wand over them and the problems and the trials and the tribulations will go away. There's, there's not some kind of magic scripture that we can use like a mantra to get out from underneath the problems and the pressures and the troubles that we face. What we are called upon is not to look for some kind of magic solution, but to patiently endure the hardship, the difficulties, the troubles. John says we all share one basic need, and he shares it as well. If we expect to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, we all need patient endurance. John shares three things in common with us, with those who read. Tribulation, a kingdom and a king to whom he was committed to serving, and the need for patient endurance. Dearly beloved, this is the way John often addressed his churches and the people to whom he would speak that were brothers and sisters in Christ. You can go back in 1 John and read his letters. Dearly beloved, as John was found of calling his brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber meets the road for believers who want to move forward in their Christian life and become 
disciples and obedient servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Patient endurance. What are we talking about here? This, this term doesn't seem to resonate with me. How many of us today are working from Monday to Friday or Saturday, working in situations with where our faith in Jesus Christ has become a real problem? A problem for those perhaps over us or perhaps for those underneath us or perhaps for those that work with us, around us. The constant drumbeat seems to be compromise. Give in. Give up. Some may even get up in the morning and wonder if they will have a job at the end of the day because they would not compromise their Christian values and convictions. We've got some young people here this morning. Youth. Junior high, senior high, perhaps college age, young adults. And you're trying to please the Lord Jesus Christ and live obedience, live in obedience to Him. And you're doing this by trying to remain chaste. And yet, you live in a culture that laughs at virginity. You stand up for what you believe. But each time you are mocked and you are pressured by a boyfriend or a girlfriend or peers. And you keep getting closer to that edge in which you sense you're going to fall over. John says, serious-minded Christians, young and old, need to share one thing in common. Patient endurance. They need to hang in there for their Lord and not give in. Don't let the world around you Tear down your witness for Jesus Christ and hinder your future effectiveness for Him. Don't compromise. Stay the course. Hang in there. But the temptation to give in or even give up does not just come from those outside. It can come from our families. It can come from our friends. It can even come from ourselves from the self-imposed desires and goals that we have in life. I think of wives and mothers today who struggle to keep pace with the world that has no place for Jesus Christ. This world just seems to be so beautifully put together to keep God out. It used to be difficult in this nation to ignore God and faith, but no longer. There's fewer fewer steeples peering up in the neighborhoods around this country. Fewer and fewer people committed to attending church on Sundays. I've been listening to some of the moms in my women's Bible studies, my women's Bible study, and I honestly don't know how they do it. To be a mom today not only means being a good homemaker. It means caring for babies and preschoolers while you're shuttling around your older kids to things like music lessons, dance lessons, martial arts classes, soccer games, 
hockey games, gymnastic meets, special tutoring stations, extension courses, college placement courses, advancement placement, doggy classes, husband's softball game, and make sure to spend quality time with your children and with your husband. Then go to Sunday school and church and Bible study and Awana. And, oh, yes, don't forget to read your Bible and pray for yourself, your family, your church, and your nation. Oh, yes, and one more thing. Don't forget to squeeze in a little time to watch Desperate Housewives. I haven't seen that, so I don't know whether that's a bad show or a good one, but the title sure seems to ring true. Because as you see the lives of a lot of godly women today, it seems like a desperate situation just trying to juggle it all and keep it together. This is a normal life as defined by the world today. And it affects all of us, not just desperate housewives. If we're honest, it affects all of us such that life itself has become a tribulation for us. We just can't get in all that we want to do and accomplish. That's my problem. And I know it's the problem of a lot of of women and men. So what John is saying is we share together as Christians a common need. And that is don't give in. Don't surrender. Doing what you know our Lord wants us to do and what he wants our families to do. Read your Bible and pray faithfully every day. Get the kids dressed and ready for Sunday school and church. Don't give up your Bible study. Don't fail to serve in the church in some capacity, in worship, in Awana, in some other capacity, as an usher, in leadership. And hang in there for the Lord. Keep doing what we know we ought to be doing as his servants. The bottom line in all temptation and tribulation will always be patiently endure. Hang in there for our awesome Lord. Make sacrifices. Put up with inconveniences. Overcome temptation. Suffer ridicule. Endure hardship. Suffer physical affliction and even death if necessary. This is the central theme of a lot of New Testament books and passages. Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter, just to mention a few. However, to patiently endure, we're going to need more than a pep rally. More than just talking it up. More than the right words. That's what disturbs me so much about Christianity today. We go for a a shot in the arm, sort of like, A pep rally. But pep rallies won't cut it for people who are really in the trenches. In World War II, when they were in foxholes shooting at the enemy and being shot at, and when the odds seemed overwhelming, they weren't having pep rallies. They were praying for the most part, and taking aim faithfully on their enemy. When I played football at Ohio State, I always had a hard time with the pep talks and the calls to talk it up, particularly when you're at the conclusion of the game 
You're two touchdowns behind. There's two minutes left to play. Come on, we can do it. Let's hear it. Come on. I just thought, give me a break. This game's done lost. I don't do well with fantasy and make-believe. I like the real thing. Just, just shoot it to me straight. I'm a realist. There's no point acting like you've won if you obviously haven't. And then I watched the USC and Texas game this past week, and I realized I've been proven wrong. <laughs> By the way, I'm a Texas fan. Anything but USC. And I know that most of you might disagree with me, but you have to remember I come from Ohio State. We've had our problems with USC over the years. And usually not favorable to Ohio State. You probably noticed that Texas, which was two touchdowns behind, with just two or three minutes to go, the camera would flash over on those sidelines and they looked like they were cheering like they'd won the game. And you look up in the Texas stands, I mean the fans, and you look for the ones in Texas, we've won, we've won, you know, they're all excited. Don't you guys get it? You're two touchdowns behind, you got two to three minutes left. Well, you see, they knew something I didn't know. They knew about a man by the name of Vince Young, who may be one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. And within a matter of two and a half minutes, he'd won the game. Almost single-handedly. Obviously, the team was important. They knew about him all season long. He'd been winning games. I guess it started when they played Ohio State at the beginning of the season. And they pulled that one out of the hat at the end, just like they did on the other night. Texas players and fans... As far as they were concerned, the game was won because they had a vision of what Vince Young could do in just a couple minutes. And that is exactly where John is going in these verses we've just read this morning. He is sharing what he heard and what he saw and experienced. Not just because he has an interesting story to tell, but because he wants us to patiently endure tribulation, knowing that victory is certain. If I were to state John's point in these verses in one memorable sentence, it would be this. Don't worry. Just be patient. In the end, we win. Don't worry. Just be patient. In the end, we win. John also had a vision of someone who was enabling him to face his tribulation and troubles as if those troubles had already been beaten. John had a vision of someone that was literally out of this world, but one who was coming back to make things right. It will be when it occurs the greatest comeback of all times in all situations. Let's walk through what John heard, saw, and experienced in these verses just briefly. Verse 10, he continues, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I was in the Spirit. I think he's referring here to the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit was working in his life in some unusual way. Second, he uses the phrase, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
Now, if that's referring to Sunday, that's sort of an unusual place to put it, and why, why, what does it contribute to the situation? Rather, I believe that the Lord's Day here is a re-reference to the Day of the Lord. In other words, if we got that, uh, there it is. If you look at the, the diagram up there, at the bottom you have the Day of the Lord. That begins with the tribulation period and continues through the second coming all the way through the Messianic kingdom. The day of the Lord was the day that John was in because the Spirit of God had miraculously transported John, not in his body, but in his spiritual presence, into this day, in the midst of the day of the Lord. And so he says, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord of the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice, a loud voice which sounded like a trumpet. Loud means it couldn't be ignored. It's one of the things that I've always struggled with because although a loud voice helps as a preacher, it doesn't exactly help when you're in, the, uh, in a restaurant and you start talking and everybody in the restaurant seems to know what you're saying. And, uh, you know, it has one of those voices that carries. And so a loud voice usually can't be ignored. People are turning around looking at you. Well, in this case, this voice couldn't be ignored. It was irresistible. It was authoritative. Furthermore, it was like a trumpet. And trumpets were usually, in the Scriptures, as in our day, used to initiate tremendous events in the Bible. Therefore, this voice suggests that something important, tremendous, is about to begin. The greatest comeback of all times is about to begin. And it's being announced by this voice. So what did the voice, the loud voice say? Verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The words the first, I think, following Alpha and Omega might mean I had the first word. I existed in the past and I had the first word and I will have the last word because I will continue to exist into the future. Speaking of the eternity of Jesus Christ, but also speaking of the fact that he has the, the first and last words. He called this world into existence, and he will have the last word in fashioning and shaping the world to come. And then he says to John, and what you see, write in a book, the book we know of as the book of Revelation, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Tyra, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write and send what John is about to see and experience and hear is so important, so tremendous, that Jesus in a loud voice says to him, what you see, hear, and experience, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Why? Because what he saw and experienced would be a real source of comfort to these seven churches who are striving to obey Jesus Christ. At least they should be striving to serve and obey King Jesus I use this, the word seven, which I mentioned last time when I mentioned it, we were in this passage, is a some number that indicates completion. And so when he uses the word seven churches, I believe those are representative churches of all the church, including our church here today, as well as all churches in this community, in the world, since the time that the church began. And so what he's saying is, is that the loud voice was saying, I want you to write this in a book because what I'm going to give you is going to be such a, a source of comfort, encouragement, and help 
to those who are in the church striving to serve me and keep my commandments to patiently endure. The point here is the book of Revelation, friends, is not for the seminary classroom. I often hear that from people. Why, Why are we in the book of Revelation? I mean, please, Arch, I mean, we don't. We struggle today with with people that just aren't interested in the Bible at all, and you're going to go in the book of Revelation? Friends, the book of Revelation is for us. It's for our encouragement. It's not just for would-be preachers or Bible students that are heavy, heavy, heady. It is for the comfort and encouragement of all of us. So what did John see and hear and experience? We continue to read. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, in verse 20, we're told that the seven lampstands symbolize the seven churches. And we're going to look at that phrase, lampstands, next week. But for now, he's referring to the seven golden lampstands, referring to the seven churches. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, that is, in the midst of the churches... In the midst of the whole church, because they represent the whole church, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white wool, like wool, white as snow, and his eyes a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, if refined in a fire or furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. One like the Son of Man. Whoa, where did that come from? This is a term that Jesus used often of himself. He called himself the Son of Man more often than he referred to himself as the Son of God, although he used both terms. Obviously, Son of Man referred to his his identity with mankind, the fact that he took the form of a man. He was fully human. The word Son of God refers to his divinity, that he was fully God as well. However, John was not thinking about theological preciseness here. When he grabs the term, like the Son of Man, John is thinking back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, which is where the term was first used in the Bible, the term Son of Man. So much of what John saw is rooted in the book of Daniel, and that's why if you really look at the book of Revelation, a lot of the themes of the Bible just all come together in the book of Revelation. But it's interesting that many of those themes passed right through the book of Daniel, from Genesis through Daniel to Revelation. Now, in Daniel 7, we read this about God's people. Daniel 7 is about God's people going through tribulation, affliction, and suffering at the hands of four world empires. And as we know, during after the, uh, the Babylonian captivity, Babylon being the first empire, the world empires were no friend of the Jew and have never been. And so what God was saying here is that he had something to say that would encourage those who were his people, who were suffering and who would suffer and experience tribulation. And what he was saying is that in the midst of my people, there will be the son of man, the one who would deliver them. Let's notice Daniel 7 verses 9 to 14. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. And I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed in the middle of the Old Testament, friends. When John saw one like the Son of Man in the midst of the seven lampstands, he wasn't thinking back to the transfiguration, as some have suggested. He was thinking about the book of Daniel. Perhaps at first he was thinking about Daniel and his three friends who were, the three friends were cast into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's image and were subsequently thrown into the fiery furnace. And we read the story this morning. But did you notice that they were delivered without so much as a a hair on their head being singed? Why? Because there was one like the Son of God in their midst who delivered them and kept them safe. Maybe Daniel or maybe John was thinking about that passage. But then in Daniel 7, we read that one like the Son of Man is in the midst of God's suffering people to deliver them into His glorious kingdom. Now in Revelation 1, John sees the one like the Son of Man in the midst of His church to deliver them into His glorious kingdom, to deliver them out of tribulation and suffering and heartache, out of a world that has been on keeping God away and out. Why did our Lord permit John to see and hear this vision of the Son of Man? To encourage and comfort you and I as we read the book. He had John write. Again, a book which has one big theme as far as the people of God are concerned. Don't worry. Just be patient. In the end, we win. How can we be so sure? John goes on to describe the Son of Man. And he says, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, or seven lampstands, was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Notice that the same garments, with the same features that were described as belonging to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. By the way, maybe you ought to read verse 14. His hair and his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. These garments, these features, this figurative language, all takes us back to what? Daniel 7. And who was it that had that appearance? The Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is seen as a judge with the authority and power to execute justice. And that is exactly now how the Son of Man is seen. Who is the Ancient of Days? Who is the Son of Man? How can we explain this change in roles? What's going on here? Explain this to me, Arch. John 5. Jesus does the best job of explaining it, obviously. 
He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. And He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in in Himself and has given Him authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Why did Jesus appear in the very same clothing and likeness as the Ancient of Days is because the Father had granted Him the authority and the power and the dignity to come and make war on His enemies and to execute divine justice. What about the clothing itself? What does it indicate? Some have suggested these are clothes of a priest, but Christ is not revealed in the book of Revelation as a priest as much as he is a priest, like in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Revelation, he's revealed as a judge, as a warrior that's coming back to execute justice. What about the clothing? What does it indicate? It says he was clothed, first of all, first of all with a garment down to the feet. A full-length robe speaks of the dignity and calling of his office as a judge. When you go into a courtroom today, A judge will wear a long robe. Why? To make it clear that this is a a very weighty person who has been granted a lot of dignity and respect. And those who don't show him respect do it to their own peril. Furthermore, Jesus was girded about the chest with a golden band or girdle. Now, priests wore girdles of various colors, but so did warriors. Warriors wore girdles into battle so that they could take their long flowing garments and tuck them up under the girdle and therefore be free to move and maneuver their sword and strike their enemy. After a battle, a warrior's girdle often would be a place where they would be granted rewards that they would put on the girdle, perhaps gold, Silver or other things that would show, convey a sense of they had a, won a valuable victory. When John saw Jesus, the Son of Man, he was wearing the girdle of a victor, a triumphant warrior. It was a girdle adorned with gold, which speaks of the value of his victory, as well as the splendor and brilliance and majesty of his person. But it was not just his clothing which gave him away as a warrior who was coming to execute judgment. Even his personal appearance said the same thing very clearly. It says his hair and his head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. In verse 13, we saw that his clothing speaks of his majesty as a judge. In verse 14, we're seeing that what we see about his personal, his persona, his countenance, speaks of his character, of his judgment. First of all, his hair and head were white like wool. 
White speaks of the purity of his character. And certainly when anyone comes to execute judgment, they need to be pure with no evil motives. Most Hurtful thing in the world is to see a judge that's corrupt. A flame indicates that his eyes were like a flame of fire. A flame suggests one who is searching, testing, purifying everything he glanced at. He will uncover evil motives, thoughts, as well as deeds and actions. Verse 15 speaks of the certainty of his judgment. For we read that his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Feet indicate his swiftness in bringing about judgment. It will happen quickly when it happens. Many people think, you know, what's happening here? I mean, we've gone on for 2,000 years. You all talk about Jesus coming back. Where is he? When he comes and we see him, it won't be but a fraction of time before he has accomplished all these things. Furthermore, it says that his feet were like Fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Brass in that day was often mixed with uh, copper. Is uh, In our day, brass is copper and tin, an alloy of copper and tin. But in that day, it was often copper and gold. And so brass was a very beautiful, shiny substance, as if ref- when it was refined in fire. And, of course, here it speaks of his, his awesome glory in bringing forth judgment. And then his voice, it says, is irresistible, a voice that cannot be challenged. It's like the flood of many waters, like a flood of of water that will overwhelm all who would stand before him. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in its strength. Verse 16 speaks of the consequences of his judgment. The consequences of his judgment. says his right hand he had the stars what's that all about well the right hand is of course the place of strength and power and security and the seven stars as we saw in verse 20 refer to the angels of the seven churches these were the messengers we'll look at this in more detail next week but these were messengers that brought blessing and the word of god and truth and encouragement to the churches And he's saying they're secure, the source of blessing and goodness and truth from God is secure in my right hand. So the churches need not fear in the midst of all this upheaval that's coming on earth. The church does not need to fear that. Furthermore, he said, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, there are two kinds of swords in the Bible. Both represent aspects of the Word of God. The one in Hebrews 4, which we're familiar with, is the one that pierces and divides and cuts like a scalpel, revealing evil and wrong in our life. But this isn't the sword that is mentioned here. This is a two-edged sword, but it's a sword that was like a, a broadsword designed to crush and destroy, to cut away, penetrate, kill, and annihilate an enemy. So the atomic bomb of that day. And when Jesus comes as a warrior to execute judgment, he will come with words coming forth from his mouth that will be like that kind of sword. They will be not calling people to repent and get right with God. 
in that day, they will be coming, there will be words that will penetrate and kill instantly and destroy and annihilate. Then it says his face, his presence represented in his face or his countenance will be like the noonday sun. The sun and its strength refers to the sun when it's at its highest point in the sky. And what happens at noonday in that part of the world is things wilt. It's so hot. Things wilt, they melt. And thus it's saying that his countenance will be such that all who are in his presence will just wilt, will wilt and melt away. They will not be able to stand before him because he's just too pure, too bright. What a vision, what a sight. Jesus Christ revealed as a warrior ready to do battle and execute the justice and wrath of Almighty God. What happened to John? Verse 17, And when I saw him, when I saw this person, I fell at his feet as dead. This is certainly not the response I would have expected. I would have expected a victory shout. Go get him, God. Go get him, Lord. Annihilate their sorry lives. But to the contrary, John was so afraid and scared that he fell on his face as dead. Why? Because there was sin and evil in his life. Just like there's sin and evil in your life and in my life, even at this moment. And in the presence of someone who's so pure and righteous and perfect, a warrior coming to execute the justice of Almighty God against those who commit sin and evil, he automatically did what any of us would do in the presence of such a person. He fell down at his feet as though he were dead. But the warrior who was coming to execute justice reached out his loving, caring, sweet hand, gracious hand, and he laid it on his right shoulder. He laid it on his shoulder and he said to him, Do not be afraid. You are safe and secure. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. I stand before time, before you even existed, and I will stand after time throughout all eternity in which you will be with me. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I'm the first and the last. I control the outcome of all things. And I have the keys to death and Hades. I have the authority and the power to unlock the grave and release the bodies of those who have died. I have the authority and the power to unlock the place of the departed spirits of the dead. How can you do anything but feel a sense of security, John? How can you keep me secure in the midst of judgment? Why can, be, why can we be secure? Why can we look into the eyes of someone who's so brilliant and so pure and be confident that we won't be struck dead because of our sins and failures? Because you see, judgment has already passed on us. God's justice, His exacting justice that is measured out on all who commit sin, has already been passed on us. We've already been judged in Jesus Christ. 
You see, when he died, he was taking our punishment. And because we put our faith in him, God sees us as in him, and he declares us just and right with him because he paid for our sins. As the scripture says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's why. The choice is ours. Be declared just and the right hand of our Savior will be on our shoulder through faith in Him. One day, we will not face Him as a judge. If we put our faith in Him, we will not face Him as a judge, as a warrior who is coming to execute justice because our judgment is past. But for those who have not accepted His person and His work for them, then judgment will be executed. And they will come up short. And they will be sent away in an eternal hell, eternally separated from God and all that is just and right and good. As we come to a conclusion today, we should be encouraged. Don't worry. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, He's going to make the greatest comeback of all times. And we need not worry about the future. We just need to be patient today and know that in the end, we win. But if you're here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, then you have one choice. If you want to avoid the warrior who's coming to judge this world, you need to put your faith in him at this very moment. This is something that happens between you and him. You're believing in him. He knows where you are in your heart. It's not something I can do. It's not something we can ask you to do something. It involves nothing you do. It involves what you believe. And it's simply an act, a response from the heart saying, Lord, I believe this. I believe Jesus. I believe he's my Savior. I'm trusting in him. And the moment that happens, then one day he'll put his hand on your shoulder as he's going to put it on my shoulder and everybody else's shoulder that's here this morning who believes in him. Not because we deserve his love and security and help and blessing and all that he has prepared for us in the future. Because he's made it possible by being the judgment, taking our judgment and justice and satisfying the justice of God. Our Father, help us today to take a hold of the truth that you have for us here. May this message resonate in our hearts and our minds, even in days to come, as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, a warrior, coming one day to make things right, to right this world and to make it prepare it for his glorious kingdom in which we shall reign with him forever and ever if we are patiently enduring. But we thank you, Father, that we will always be with him because we are secure in his love. We will never be cast out of his presence. And we thank you for that hope. In his name we pray.